everybody. Welcome back. It's Close of Business Tuesday, and we are crazy lucky. Um, today, we've got not only industry experts, but we've got dear friends. We have Megan Hayes and Mark Viviano from Kimridge. And you probably know, without me telling you too much more, that Mark is a longtime investor in the space. Megan is a longtime IR, strategic, communications, strategy person in the space. In fact, they've both been doing that for 15 plus years. What you may not know is that Megan recently joined Cambridge, and Mark's been there for now, I guess, a little over a year or so, two years now, uh, on a second fund. So things are going really well. And we just wanted to catch up with Megan and Mark. We were lucky they were in town, but they also recently wrote another one of their white papers. I think they've written seven or so, uh, telling us all uh, you know, what they're thinking and what their philosophy is and really trying to be leaders in this space. And so we greatly appreciate you guys coming by. This is gonna be so fun. We're, we're already having fun and haven't even asked you a question yet. Well, thanks for having us. Excited to be here, excited to be part of what you're building here at Veriton. Well, and I understand you were at the Petroleum Club and you, you packed 180 into the, I don't have any data on those numbers, but I think 180 is a big number. That's what I was told. So excited there's interest out there and, and obviously uh, everything that's happening in the sector is quite topical these days. Yeah, so uh, look, before we jump in, uh, let me ask, uh, we were doing a little pregame and, and we said, Mike, what are you gonna talk about? And he said, oh, you know, just a few of the things happening in the space here recently. But Mike, why don't you warm us up and tell us what we should have in our minds before we get to talking to these guys? Yeah, really. I mean, I think the, the buzzword this last week is just volatility, right? I mean, we've seen volatility with crude oil. You know, crude oil is down about 20% in the last week or so. I mean, that's just, you know, huge. I mean, if you look at the volatility index, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty high as well. And so that's expected. Uh, you, we really went uh, a long way. We, we went from literally 100 bucks to 130 bucks on Brent over the course of about a month. And so, yeah, that wasn't based on fundamentals. That was based on, you know, essentially, you know, craziness and volatility and concern. We've come back to earth now. We've really round trip crude oil where we were before the Ukrainian crisis broke out. Uh, and the good thing is that, you know, the energy stocks are still doing well. Yeah, they've pulled back in the last week. And, you know, if we look at this graph, you know, this chart right here, you can kind of see what we're talking about. S&P Energy is down about 7% in the last week. You know, you see crude oil is down 20%. But what's interesting to us is the ICLN, the Clean Energy Index, is also down 7 8%. Neck is kind of counterintuitive what you would have thought would happen, right? Uh, but it is down. And, and so the other thing is natural gas looks about flat, but in Europe, it's down about 45%. Electricity prices are, are down about 45% as well, which you would expect. And so, you know, that's kind of what's been going on in the commodity markets and the equity markets. You know, as, as far as what uh, we were doing last week, we were at the Sarah conference last week and we went to, God, it seemed like 100 presentation, 100 panels. And, and there are oh, a few things that kind of stood out for us, uh, first of all, is energy security is the number one issue by far. It used to be energy transition. That is secondary. Security is number one. The other thing we you know, got a sense for is permitting. I mean, permitting is a big, big you know, uh, you know, hurdle. You know, we heard some guys talking in the, uh, in the mining industry that it takes them anywhere to, upwards of 15 years to get a permit. Uh, that's, you just got to get out of the way. That's yeah, ridiculous. See, it's funny. You say permitting and everybody kind of goes to drilling permits, but you're talking about permitting anything anywhere. You're talking about big construction, Most honestly. Most people, if you're looking at something greenfield, minimum of six to seven years. I mean, so I think what you know, we came away thinking is, look, I mean, all this energy transition, people are assuming you know, the raw material is there. It's not there. We have to go find it. It takes time to get it. It takes time to permit it. It gets time to mine it. And so that's really being called into question at this point in time. 
And I think the last thing that kind of stood out to me is that, you know, we've been doing this globalization for the last 20 years. You know, every president's talked about it. You know, supply chains getting taken around the world to China, Vietnam, et cetera. And I think what I heard is that, you know, we're going to have to bring that back home, regional type, uh, um, you know, raw material chains and, you know, in supply chains. And, and, and what you're going to get is that's going to be inflationary. I mean, we've been in a deflationary environment for the better part of 20 years. Security means we're going to have an inflationary environment. I don't think that's really, you know, priced into what people are thinking at this point in time. I thought, I thought it was pretty incredible. Secretary Granholm just basically said, yes, the Chinese have locked up most of the key strategic minerals. You know, like, and now we're going to have to address it. So not something that's just kind of talked about, but now it's like openly talked about. Yeah, the conference was pretty amazing. Uh, Dan and Jamie, if you're watching, you're probably recuperating somewhere. Uh, it, it was your finest ever. It was just really fantastic. Colin, let's jump to you. I know we caught you on spring break, but we, we can't, uh, you know, you're going to be a part of COBT no matter where you are. So what's happening, brother? Yeah, on the road and glad to, uh, to be out here. Um, this week I have three items uh, about perception. The first is, uh, if you go back to January and February of 2020, we wrote the uh, keynote essay for NAEP magazine at that time. And remember, our argument was that energy was in an inverse bubble. And we were looking for mirror Minsky moments. In other words, a popping of the bubble, but in the reverse pattern of normal. And uh, arguably, there were two. One was in April 2020, when we saw that negative NYMEX print for one day. And the second came a few months later in November 2020, when Pfizer announced uh, that it had an effective vaccine. And so confronted with the reality that you had uh, a sub-zero crude oil price, and then also the demand was about to rocket, that really was when we began to see some shifts in perception about relative value. The second perception uh, that we put on the table is the gasoline price. I'm in California today, the average price of retail uh, regular grade gasoline is $5.75. The highest is $5.93. And just to you know, go back in time a little bit, it was only in August of 2021 that the White House sent a letter to the FTC intimating that there was some kind of price manipulation happening at the refinery level. And at that time, uh, the price was about $3.15 on that August 11th date when Brian Deese sent the first letter to the FTC. Uh, the FTC responded on August 25th. It had maybe moved one or two cents, but still around 315. And then President Biden again wrote another uh, letter in November when we were at about $3.40. That's relevant because at the time, remember, on COBT, we said, look, everybody knows that once you cross some of these big uh, numbers on the, the handle price of gasoline, three or four, you're going to get a political response. And certainly there was one as we crossed three. But our caution at the time was, you better look at this in inflation-adjusted terms, because when you do the math, while the politicians may think they have a problem at three or even four, we would need to go to much, much higher prices to get the kind of demand destruction um, that, that folks were uh, expecting. And so here we are today, $4.32 is the U.S. average, as I said, five seventy-five dollars in, uh, in California. And you would probably need to see, as we've said many, many times, a $6 nationwide average price to get to the kind of economic um, and real political problems that people have thought would happen at three or four. And if you doubt that, go ask anybody on the street whether they think $3 or 315 would be a good price. And here it is just six or seven months later, and probably everybody would say that sounds a lot better than 432. 
The third point we would make on perception uh, came yesterday. And what was interesting was the UN Secretary General noted that there is increased risk of use of tactical nuclear weapons. We've all known that since that first Thursday, February 24, when the Russians invaded Ukraine en masse. And yet we also had a producer on Russia's Channel One interrupt a live broadcast and hold up a placard that basically said no to war and uh, you're being lied to, don't believe the propaganda, et cetera. And so, you know, what I took away from that is obviously this uh, event in Ukraine is of immense historical significance. It's one of the most important events of the 21st century to date and will be at the end of the 21st century, still one of the most important things that happened. Um, its effects are unlikely uh, to, to be resolved in the near future. Uh, we're talking, you know, years and decades. We'll see aftershocks from this. But when you have a single human being behave that way, while on the same day the UN Secretary General is, is painting the, the downside, um, it reminds us that the contours of risk here can go in a bunch of different directions, and none of us know exactly what's going to happen. And so, putting all that together, uh, by way of leading into our guests. I, it, the, the point is that just because we were in, in an inverse bubble and it proved to be wrong to write off uh, energy completely, hydrocarbons in particular, doesn't mean that the oil and gas industry was right. There were plenty of criticisms uh, of the industry that were correct then and, and even more correct now. And we have to keep focused on the industry has a responsibility to behave responsibly, uh, to meet its obligations to all stakeholders and to provide affordable and reliable products that are demanded by the human race. And so with that, um, that's my, my tee up and let me turn it back to you, Maynard. All right, Colin. Well, um, gosh, as I'm listening to Mike, listening to you, thinking about Sarah, you just had 180 people in the Petroleum Club. There's just nothing to talk about. I mean, should we just... Um, you, you know, no, the amazing thing too, Maynard, is, you know, I wanted to drop this in there before we got this discussion going. I mean, it seems like, you know, oil prices have been down and, you know, there's, you know, one week is doesn't make a year, right? And if you look at the first quarter so far, the XLE is outperforming by 45% in Q1. I went back at least 15 years. That's 60 quarters. We've never been even more close to that. The closest, you know, is 2,000 basis points below. So, yeah, things, you know, near term, yeah, a little bit rocky. But, you know, it's been damn good over the last quarter. And so we need to kind of recognize that. We're on really good footing. Yeah. So, uh, Mark and Megan, let's, let's think about where we start. I mean, I think... One place to start, if you look at this environment here, um, Mark, when you left Wellington and you were thinking, I'm a little frustrated, I love this industry, we're not doing it right, you started speaking up for doing so many of the things that we do now. Um, the Ukraine thing totally disrupts your mentality. It's hard to see through that, and it's obviously a tragic and important thing, but could you have ever imagined that we might be where we are when you think back to when you were moving over the industry? You, you were using the word uninvestable yeah. at that time. And now, um, you know, to Mike's point, we, the industry is obviously doing really well. What, what do you, how do you reflect on this when you think back on your journey here at Cambridge? <laughs> no, it's a good question and, and haven't had a lot of time for reflection, which I guess is good. We've been, we've been busy. Uh, we've been fundraising. We've been publishing white papers, we've been deploying capital. It's been a, it's been a great, great two years. Um, but maybe just some background. I mean, the reason I, I joined Kimbridge in, in early 2020 was that frustration I had. I had dedicated my career to public energy 
investing, and that included 15 years at, at Wellington Management. And I just saw the, uh, the signs in, in speaking to all the generalist portfolio managers that the sector had become uninvestable. And initially, it was the issues around flawed capital allocation philosophies, the failure of governance, but increasingly, it was these risks associated with the energy transition. And I would have portfolio managers come to me, and I know Mike heard this, this commentary as well from investors saying, I think oil's going away in 10 years. Why would I ever invest in this sector? And I didn't think the industry had a very good response to that when they were putting 100% of the cash flow back into the ground with this terrible ESG profile. And so, uh, you know, there was, a, there, was a, there was a fork in the road, and it was essentially um, pivot to another sector, different career path, or really double down and try to play a role in reforming the sector. And that was ultimately the decision I made. When I joined in February 2020, we started publishing a series of white papers, as you noted. The first one was called Preparing the EMP Sector for the Energy Transition. And that was actually the title of the presentation today I gave over at the Houston uh, Petroleum Club. So um, the, 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 the satisfaction of the last two years is how well the industry has coalesced around this message. Um, I think the crisis that was, you know, if there's a silver lining coming out of COVID, that crisis forced the industry to look up, look back, reflect, and change, and I think that's been it's been great to see. Well, and also the COVID zero percent interest rate, uh, Biden administration, there are a bunch of other forces that gave a huge lift off to the non oil and gas world, which just created the increased the competitive tension on oil and gas. But you know, when you were talking about that, I was one really one thing you did is like if oil and gas was a movie theater. And everybody was running out like it was on fire. You were entering the building. <laughs> and, and that was, it was a good time to say, actually, I, I mean, you had to fight a bunch of battles, but you wanted to put money to work. And if people are not putting money to work, that's usually a good sign. Yeah, it felt a little lonely there at the bottom. And we were fundraising in April 2020. So you can imagine what some of those conversations were like, but um, it's worked out well. So Megan, maybe just a Pull, pull you in. So you recently joined November. That's right. And um, you know, we, we were joking before, if Megan was an investment bank, she would lead the league tables over the last few years. She, she, she did uh, Concho RSP, and then she did uh, Concho to Conoco, and then more recently, uh, Semerex and Cabot. So you've seen consolidation up close and personal. What made you decide that it would be like a fun career move to to join Mark and, and you know get into this side of the business. Yeah, after 15 years with public companies, it was um, an interesting opportunity, to say the least. And I've had the I'm a huge believer in the industry, and I've had the pleasure to work with some of the smartest teams and really great leaders. And I'd put Mark in that camp. And so the opportunity. Oh man, now he heard that. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's going to hear that. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Um, yeah. Use never squander a moment to pander your new boss. Um, <laughs> but I, but in reality, it was um, the the ability for Mark to be very early in diagnosing what was ailing the industry, and not just um, diagnosing it, but offering um, pragmatic and rational opportunities to correct that, uh, moderating reinvestment. I mean. Uh, returning more capital to shareholders, being more, um, paying more attention to ESG and to sustainability. And it was all of those things on being a first mover that made it uh, a really interesting opportunity that I just couldn't pass up to 
work beside him as opposed to from across the table. Yeah. I was tired of him whacking me on the head <laughs> as an IR. Now I get to work with him. Well, that's something we should talk about is Megan, you, you've been selling uh, yes. deals and, and Mark's been deciding whether or not to vote for him here for a while. So we might have to talk about what you guys are learning, but maybe uh, Mark and Megan, either one, just the complex, like how many people at Cambridge now and how big, because we all know it's growing and, and, and you join, both of you join, but maybe just a sense of the complex. Yeah, um, I think Cambridge can be a little difficult to um, navigate from the outside because it's, it's, it's a little complex. I would say just back up, it was founded 2012, so we're at the 10-year anniversary this year. Um, it really started as a private equity firm. I'd say the one thing I think about when I think about Cambridge is, is flexibility and adaptability, the way the, the models evolved with the sector. Um, so rather than kind of sticking with the model of identifying early stage resources, uh, developing, de-risking, and, and selling to the industry, uh, the, the strategy really evolved with the sector. Uh, they were early in identifying the opportunity in minerals within the Permian. Uh, there was a shift to the public markets back in 2017, 2018, some of the opportunities that bore out there, including the use of activism. And then just last, uh, in 2020, the distressed debt opportunity. So um, the investment in extractions bonds, the, the, the financing package they had with Callan, just showing the ability to navigate through what's really a dynamic sector. Uh, to put the numbers around it, the firm today has $2.4 billion of assets under management. And we think about that the way private equity talks about numbers. That is committed capital, so that doesn't account for capital that's been returned or capital that um, has seen an increase due to, due to market value. Uh, within that, the public strategy that Megan and I are focused on is a little over $400 million. And this is the only public strategy. The rest is private. Yes. But what I would say is uh, what Ben did both uh, now in Civitas and the investment in Calum that turned into equity is actually still within the private business. So that's the gray area that I think people have a little bit of a challenge um, navigating. What, what, the way we look at it is direct minority interest investments in public companies is under our pur purview. Anything that's really looking for a controlled position or something that's a direct lending opportunity, that's really on the private side of the business. No, you made... Um so I, I mentioned that everybody knows you were at Wellington for 15 plus years. And um, so in this platform, I've never shared it. I don't want to call you an activist, yeah. but you, you are, because that makes me makes you sound like something I don't think you are, but maybe yeah. you're an activist. But you know what I'm saying? You are offering your views. Uh, the firm has views as expressed in your white papers. And maybe we just, we've got a little slide here that shows, I think there've been seven. Yeah. And they've covered a lot of territory. The most recent one is now or never testing the resolve of the EMP industry. But you've covered, you mentioned the first one that kicked it off on the model. You've talked about net zero. You've talked about compensation. That's a, that's a big one. Um, and you've also, you know, this, this, it's like a mix of we got to get better and we got to prepare for the future. Yeah. It seems to be um, the two themes. But, but you really... Talk about a fork in the road. You decided, I'm going to change my style, yeah. so to speak. Would you want to talk about that decision? Yeah. I, you alluded to it. But. Yeah, no, and, and, and listen, activist tends to have a negative connotation, particularly when you're speaking. Do you say with, you're an activist? I call myself a reluctant activist. A reluctant a, a activist. Reluctant okay. activist. I knew there was an asterisk I mean, there. You know you me quite just, well, Maynard. It's, it's not, not, my, capital it's not my natural personality to fight, but it, it was almost a last resort. And, and it kind of bore out of that frustration at Wellington where you could you could see these issues. Uh, I like to think about it as the train was coming down the track. The train was the energy transition. The management teams and the boards were on the track. You were trying to wave them away, 
They just weren't acknowledging the train. And so then you have to push them off, right? And it is a last resort. Um, but I, what I would say is when I was at Wellington, we had a very big carrot. We could buy a lot of stock. We could sell a lot of stock. We had a seat at the table. We were engaging with the management teams. But we didn't have that stick. Uh, there was nothing to follow through if they weren't willing to listen to our recommendations. And all I wanted to do was have that stick in the toolkit, which is you could escalate things if necessary. Um, but we're trying to build a different brand of activism, which is we are trying to engage constructively in the companies that we're invested in. And it is a last resort, but we do have to have that alternative or you don't get the receptivity that you really need. Is it too different? I mean, Megan, you've seen institutional shareholders forever. Um, you know, when a company tells me that a large shareholder came by and said, hey, we really think you need to focus on the, these three or four. I mean, is this, is this really any different than that? Or how do you see it from your former seat? Well, I think given the tenure that the firm has in covering the sector and being able to not, like I said earlier, not just diagnose, but offer real solutions that can be adaptable or moldable to a, a business, the business model of the said company and uh, their capital structure, it, it really isn't any different than what you would hear, except that it's more specialized and um, it has a, a deeper track record and, and thought leadership that supports it through the white papers that you've uh, referenced. I was in your latest paper, Mark, you talk about four things that really, I mean, there's been a ton of papers and we're going to try to steer everyone to all of them. They're all free on the website. They're all free on the website, but, but one of them is... Um, transparency and and this this in this instance is a little bit about like resource transparency like tell me what you'll be doing for the next decade um, the other one is no fun with math like tell me what percent of your cash flow not after you you know etc compensation remains a big one um, and then the last one is consolidation so those are really uh, meaty ones to talk about do you want to maybe um, when you say enhance transparency and talk about show me what you're doing for a decade, I think, Megan, you'll appreciate this. Like, how do you do that unless you're huge, right? Yeah. Like, so there's only so many companies that can pursue that. So it's another way of saying you should be bigger-ish. Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, we talk about that as in the consolidation theme as well, the need to be bigger because it gets back to this idea of relevancy. And relevancy in the financial markets through the energy transition is going to require size and scale, not just the way we used to think about it, which was operational scale. It's are you big enough to matter? Are you on the radar of the investment community? But, but it's interesting. The way you explain it, though, is so here's a world that's I'm reluctant because you guys haven't made money. But I'm also a little reluctant because I've got these energy transition questions. So the scale is not like you need to be 10 billion because... I just want a market cap of that size. It's you have to have X gazillion amount of inventory so you can show me you'll be in business so I know what I'm getting into here. Yeah, which, which I think the bigger word to put around that is sustainability, right? And I think people think about sustainability in, in different terms. Clearly, one of that, one way is, is the environmental side. And, and are you committed to net zero? Are you on a path to net zero that's aligned with the Paris Agreement? But part of it is the durability of the free cash flow generation. I mean, we've talked about the only way you're overcoming the terminal value risk associated with oil and gas is to demonstrate the visibility into returning uh, a significant amount of capital. We talk about 100% of the enterprise value in 10 years. Well, it's not a magic number, but it gets back to this idea that if people are concerned about long-term visibility into oil demand by the end of the decade, if you're returning 100% of the enterprise value through free cash flow, you de-risk that uncertainty. 
but it gets, you know, the big debate in the market is, does this industry have the inventory depth to have a repeatable model with the duration to continue to generate the free cash flow yields that are getting generated today? Because I think people look at it, they look at the valuations, whether it's the EV to EBITDA multiple, the PE, or the free cash flow yield, and all you, you can conclude is there's a high degree of skepticism around the sustainability of the model. So you, you said net zero, and I, I was looking at Megan, because I remember when, um, when Concho and um, Conoco rolled out, you know, Paris, Paris aligned, there, that's right. And a, a lot of us in the community weren't used to the word Paris and the rollout materials. Is, is net zero something that you talk to your companies about? Like you should, is that important to you? Or how do you think about that type of guidance? Yeah, do you yeah, absolutely. I mean, I th it's funny you bring up that uh, transaction in particular because I think boards are now evaluating consolidation and, and applying an extra lens to do that, the sustainability lens. And so I, I think that was a milestone within the communication of M&A deals. But with respect to our companies and our engagement, uh, you know, white paper that came out in September 2020 was charting a path to net zero. And there were really four key things, and it was methane intensity, GHG intensity, it was um, aligning with uh, TCFD and SASB, and then verifying uh, your methane emissions reporting through a third party and independent. And these are milestones that companies can make along the way on their path to net zero. But the crux of it is that those net zero targets that are all the way out to 2050, we really feel like there's an opportunity there for the industry to accelerate that and demonstrate that the industry has already been on a very positive trajectory with reducing emissions. And if we can accelerate that, improve the durability of the space, I think it's going to really um, behoove the industry over a longer period of time. I mean, we had, uh, Toby Rice was here last week. Right. I, I thought he said, I don't want to mess this up, but I thought he said net zero 2025. He did. Scope one and scope two. Yes. Right, that's all. So it does seem doable. It's not the kind of, 2050 that everybody else is talking I think you see about. a little bit of differentiation between the gas names and the oil names. Um, last week during Sarah Week, the OGCI announced net zero methane emissions among some of those big, um, you know, national oil companies and international oil companies. And so I think, you know, first step committing to zero routine flaring. Um, the World Bank initiative is 2030. Can we bring that to 2025 or now? Um, and so and very soon you're going to have the SEC kind of start requiring some of these reporting and it's going to put everybody on a level playing field with we know what the size of the problem is. Now, how can we attack it and, and get that as close to zero and uh, ensure our role within the supply mix over the long term? So, Mark, when you know, that's a great question. I mean, it seems to me is, uh, you know, just the free cash flow is coming. The balance sheets are getting much better, a lot quicker than most people expected. Um, return of capital for everyone seems fairly similar, right? It seems to me now the ESG component is, is going to be what kind of differentiates you uh, going forward. And we, we've heard from, you know, Pioneers, the Conicos, the EOGs, those guys are really trying to get out, out front of that, you know, from methane and stuff of that nature. Is, is that because they're getting pressured by the generals to really start talking about that? Or they, or they know that, hey, that's what's going to differentiate us down the road and that's what we need to be going after? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great question. I think there's a lot of debate. What, will people come back to owning fossil fuel companies? And I can tell you that, you know, Wellington, which was not a top-down organization, there was no CIO, that decision was at the individual portfolio manager level, depending on their mandate. But I can also tell you that every one of those portfolio managers, when they have a client meeting, the first question they get, if there's a change to the portfolio, something especially like buying an oil and gas company, how does that fit within your ESG philosophy and process, right? 
And so I think you're going to need to connect the dots between ESG strategy, um, execution of that strategy, and is this stock ownable within a portfolio? And I think it's going to be a list of haves or have not. Are you on the list that investors can own or not? And that is going to determine your relative valuation multiple because the amount of capital you'll be exposed to versus if you're not meeting that criteria, it's you're unownable regardless of what your valuation looks like. I think we're starting to see the early signs of that, but I think that's the future for the industry. Mark, maybe one thing. There's so much we could talk about here. Um, so when you raise your first fund, that's a completely different world. And, you know, uh, that was like uh, you were a, a man in the wilderness, you know, uh, raising money. By the time you go back, the world's changed, you know, four times over. You've made a bunch of money with your investments. You've proven the strategy. Um, I guess we this point about institutions don't want to own oil and gas. And around here, like we'll hear, well, you know, this uh, pension fund in this state just said they're actually open to it. Yeah. Or then you'll hear something negative. So it seems like maybe it's changing a little bit. Or what, what can you say from your discussions, what the attitudes are out there? Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, it's evolving real time. Um, we have had more success. Because we got inflation, too. That's, we have. Yeah. I mean, and, and I would not discount how important relative performance is. I mean, a lot of asset allocation in the industry is done based on look back performance. And I think what got inter, intermixed was how much of the aversion to fossil fuel investing was ESG versus it was a terrible sector for so long and people lost a lot of money. And I think the conversation's evolving. I think everything within the ESG conversation's evolving. And I like to think of it as a pendulum and it probably swung a little too far in one direction. I'd like to see some more moderation there. And I think we are. Um, we've had more success fundraising. Part of it is we've built up a track record. Uh, we've had investment success. We've had engagement success. Um, but I also think people are more open-minded to we may be underexposed to energy. And I think, you know, going back to the original conversation, I think people mis mistook the lack of energy relevance within the market, so 2% of the S&P 500, with the lack of relevance in society. And at the end of the day, energy is the lifeblood of society. And ignoring that is at your own peril, as we're starting to realize, um, so much of what's going on in the world today is tied to the energy industry. So um, as you guys, because your, your, so your approach to the portfolio, we've visited about this is, is really interesting too. And I thought it came up in your paper. You talk about, hey, executives should not be compensated based on relative performance. So don't, don't let oil and gas companies get in a group of 10 and then just be duking it out to see, you know, who is the, make them perform against other companies. In your share what you, you can about your strategy, but you know you've had large concentrations, and you also don't aren't just trying to beat some. Yeah. Th there's some fascinating, I think, the mechanics of your fund. Yeah, it's a, I mean it's a little less talked about, but at the same time we were trying to rethink. Well, how should how should the industry position for the energy transition? We spent a lot of time thinking how should you invest in, in energy through the transition and rethinking the strategy. Um, if you go back to the Wellington days, the way most people invest in the sector, they were evergreen products, which is I raise, I raise a product, uh, the day you decide to allocate, we put all your money in the fund, and uh, you, you take it out at your discretion, which is- And, your, you, and you spread it over that flavor. And it's, it's very diversified, and it tries to uh, beat a benchmark. And what I realized over doing that over time is uh, energy is not an evergreen sector. I think the returns are highly cyclical. I think they're highly episodic. What you need is alignment in the strategy, the same way we talk about alignment in executive compensation. 
that we raise money, but we're raising it like a private equity fund where the, the money is committed, but we're not putting it to work the day that you decide or get approval from your investment committee to put it to work. We have full discretion of putting it in, putting it out. We have no benchmark, which means there's no called strikes, right? So it's this whole idea of you wait for the fat pitch to come over the plate. You know where you are in the cycle. You know what valuations look like, and you You're wait a for those dislocated. Well, you used the to, you used the Toby Rice uh, baseball analogy okay, last that's week, true, so that's I was trying to play. Well, well that was we moved Alan G up the batting order. That so. yes, sorry, sorry. Um, but that's the idea: is not being forced to own a sector when it's not the right time. And then the way we changed the incentives was we only get paid a, a carry on exit, which is we're fully incentivized once the return opportunity has played out to go, to give the money back to you. Whereas if you look at most. Asset management firms, when they have an evergreen product, it's always telling you the opportunity is great because you're holding on to the capital and charging a management fee on that. We want it to be this, how do we capture an episodic return within the sector? Okay, so you, so you can be patient. You're not judged against a benchmark. You're just judged. You're just talking to your investors about a return and you'll give them their money back. So how do you, I think, let's go with this analogy. How do you know a fat pitch? Like meaning there are lots of things that are undervalued. Megan, when you're trying to think about this, how do you know, okay, that one is undervalued, but it's going to rally versus that one's undervalued and it may stay undervalued? Like, are there tricks of the trade that you guys are, well, you probably don't want to give away the secret. Well, and it's, and, it's, and it's not a magic formula. But what I will say is it's not that different the way I would think about an investment opportunity at Wellington, which is you find dislocated opportunities. You identify what you think the catalyst is to re-rate the stock. The difference is we just wanted the toolkit to make sure that if the management team and the board isn't receptive to executing on that, that we have an alternative. And because as Mike knows, the, the difference between a value opportunity and a value trap is a very thin line. And if you don't have the ability to help affect the outcomes, you can really get stuck in perpetually cheap stocks. And that's what we're trying to avoid. Um, I, I think a lot of people are able to recognize dislocated opportunities in the sector. The question is, how do you change it? The dreaded short-term investment turns into a long-term investment, right? Exactly. Well, you, and you used the, the, the lingo of value trap and value opportunity, okay? I'm getting better. That was good. <laughs> How about all this mess in Europe? Is this, a, is this uh, I, and I, I'm not referring to Ukraine. I'm referring to what we had pre-Ukraine, which was already messy. Is that... Like how wide can you think in terms of investing? How how broad of stocks are you thinking about? How how unique a disconnect? Like yeah. how big is the radar screen in the uh, in the uh, in the tower? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say we've spent the last few weeks not thinking about you know where the commodity price is going tomorrow, what the how this is going to play out um, from a from a politics political perspective. What we're, we're spending our time on is what are the structural What's the structural impact of the sector from an investment standpoint coming out of this crisis? And I think it is going to be a reassessment of the role of natural gas within the energy transition. I think I think Toby hit on it great in your conversation. Uh, you know, I, I saw the slides that they put out. Um, this idea that if you really want to have the greatest impact on on the world, we need to move off of coal. But it gets back to it also is imperative for Europe to get off of a reliance on Russian gas. The answer to all of that is U.S. LNG. Um, so. The way I think about it from a long-term investment standpoint, I think the ability to own U.S. natural gas producers within a portfolio is going to become uh, more acceptable. I think the valuation that people put on long-term U.S. natural gas resources will change coming out of this. It's going to take time. That's not a trading um, impact. It's going to be a reassessment of the role of, of U.S. natural gas within the broader 
energy landscape. So that's that's really how I think about it, is the, what are the lasting impacts of this crisis? So you, you guys visit with these, your own investors and people that you talk to about investing all the time. What what is what, When do we stop the hand-wringing about natural gas and just say, yep, that's it. I mean, is it, is it, is it methane emissions? We finally standardize those enough to know, okay, yes, good producer, verifiable results. Will, will that be the trigger thing? I think that's a, a key part. I think it's um, charting that path to net zero, real tangible milestones that they can demonstrate the direction of travel. I think there's an element here of just the uh, certification of gas. And I think Toby maybe hit on that a little bit last week. And um, but the likes of Project Canary and MIQ cert coming out and certifying and verifying um, gas all the way from the wellhead to the dock overseas. And so um, I think that's going to be a, an important contributing factor to, um, you know, broadening the aperture of owning natural gas names in portfolios. And it, but it seems like uh, the technology to f just find out about the methane leakage and all that is like accelerating like you cannot believe. And so it feels to me like in the next five years, you're either there or you're not there. Yeah. And you're going to be exposed pretty quickly, right? Which kind of argues back to the whole M&A angle, right? Yeah. Bigger guys are probably, you know, not, not as cheap, but, you know, they've got a little bit of lower free, free, cash flow, free cash flow yield. But it seems like in the next couple of years, you might be able to take advantage of that if you're a bigger company, uh, you know, for guys that can't, you know, really spend on that stuff. And it all comes back to what we're talking about transparency, right? I mean, I think the investors are going to demand transparency on what is the environmental impact of the extraction process of oil and gas. And I think technology is going to play an important role. In you know, one of the interesting things to us too is that, you know, the U.S. majors really kind of have lagged on, you know, the, you know, the, the green movement and they've outperformed, right, uh, over the last uh, year or so. And I, you know, not that you guys are looking at that, but I'm thinking about the, the large cap EMPs. I mean, how would you guys think about them putting three or four or 5% of their cash into some development projects, either kind of adjacent type stuff of what they're doing or, you know, or, you know just methane type, you know, uh, reading and stuff. I mean, just adjacent type business. Is that a good thing or do you just look poorly on that? No, I mean, I, I will start with uh, investors are quite wary of this industry's uh, ability to allocate capital, right? I mean, I think it goes back to what we thought we saw in the, in the shale revolution. Um, but there is a demand uh, to improve the environmental footprint of the industry and investing in early stage te technology uh, that'll enhance that, I think is going to be looked on favorably. But I think it's a maturation and it all comes back to what is the materiality of that investment? Um, can you prove that it's, it's really transparent and needle moving, I think there's gonna be an openness to it. But it has to be, to your point, adjacent to your existing footprint. And it's not a, just about finding a green investment that enhances your, your, your reputation. When you're thinking about M&A, uh, because there's, there's, there has been M&A over the years that it's been awesome, and there's been M&A that was not awesome. What, what are the kind of, if I said the definition of, of good M&A, uh, in today's world, like if we see some stuff in the next year, what 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 does good M and A look like from maybe your Megan should answer that? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Well, they both should. That's why we got to ask this question. Yeah, I know. I know Mark's going to have thoughts on you know inventory replenishment and free cash flow creative and and how um, the balance sheet is structured post uh, transaction and and whether or not companies are leaning into a return of capital mechanism. 
I think another element is just as you think about um, your pregame before you do a transaction, it's super critical to um, recall how you've been communicating with investors up until that point. Uh, What is the context in which you will be announcing that transaction? And um, and then I think it's really important to engage along the entire process. And so uh, we saw that uh, at Concho Conoco and again at Cimarex and Cabot, just having that open dialogue with shareholders post announcement. And so um, and then we, you know, just to kind of go back uh, through another lens at which people view M&A, it's going to be how creative is it to the sustainability of the business? And it's that that other definition for sustainability. It's the environmental footprint. Is this going to enable the company to reduce its environmental footprint at large? I'm going to use the baseball analogy again and say no curveballs, right? I think think a lot of the challenge with this industry is these deals are announced and investors are throwing up their hands saying, this was not telegraphed well. I had no idea the company was considering this basin or this opportunity. Um, and then it, it, you really get a lack of trust between investors and management, and it takes a long time to recover from that. And, and uh, the only other thing I would say is strategically, it needs to be one plus one is more than two. And I don't just mean there are some synergies that's usually a small number of the overall deal sizes. Has it changed the go forward strategy of the combined companies? And I'll use the, the deal that was announced last week between Whiting and Oasis. That was, I think, in most people's minds, an, an obvious deal that probably should have happened well before bankruptcy. But now, as a combined company, you have a platform for consolidation within the Bakken. And there's potentially deals that could be done that they couldn't do, given the financial firepower of each individual company. That, to me, is the type of consolidation we'd like to see. Awesome. Well, it's funny to this point about how will the market react if there's always the basic question is, well, what have you told them so far? (laughs) Right. So we should all keep that one in mind. Colin, what's on your mind, sir? Yeah, well, you know, one theme picking up on something Mark said that I think is really important to emphasize is risk is a fundamental. And part of the problem over the past few years is actual risk has been a lot different than perceived risk. And one way to square that circle is to have a market, a futures market that expires regularly and promptly. So you don't get to uh, have an opinion in a perpetual instrument and, uh, sit on it for the rest of time. You, you can be wrong and proven to be wrong. And so um, two numbers and then a question. Even a month ago, before Russia invaded Ukraine, we already had the futures market in gasoline and the retail market uh, for gasoline giving us numbers that were far ahead of what was supposedly possible, 350 at the pump. We also had the futures market for emissions at $100 per ton equivalent, whereas the social cost of carbon is 51 by fiat in U.S. policy. And so here's the question. One of your white papers talks about how the energy industry should have a carbon offset market um, along the same line of logic. And I'm wondering uh, how you think about what that market should look like and what its objectives are. We think it's critical to put a price on carbon. I think waiting for a political solution um, might be a long wait. And um, one of the things I think we think the industry needs to be talking about is how is there an industry-led solution? Um, it's, it's one of the reasons, I mean, there's a debate today around the use of, of offset credits. I think the, the benefit that has is it forces companies internally to put a price on, on carbon and to make decisions with the recognition there's a price. And that further incentivizes you to reduce your, your carbon intensity. 
Um, so, you know, all we were trying to do with that is really spur the conversation, right? What, you know, how you actually implement that in practice, I think is something that's going to need to get flushed out. But starting to think about what's the way for the industry-led solution to put a price on carbon rather than waiting for Washington to recognize that it's important. Yeah, and, and I guess I mean, they don't have to be mutually exclusive, right? I mean, you could have industry come up with a solution. You could have a, you know, futures market. Um, I, I know that that particular futures market was a little bit squirrely. Uh, I traded it myself, you know, 15 to 17 years ago, and it, it had some problems to start. But it's really important when a market is trying to send you a signal that even what sounds like a high price, that $51 per ton may be too low. And you got to pay attention to stuff like that. I was just going to say, I was thinking about uh, Megan's comments on net zero and bringing that forward. And then this, your comments on, you know, pricing carbon and the industry should grab it. And then just, you would say right here in this moment, oil and gas as an industry is, it's getting another look because it's profitable. It's getting another look because we've been reminded of some issues with other uh, sources of energy. And it's obviously getting another look because of the security things. So there, there is a moment here for the industry that this would be the time to step forward and say, hey, since you're looking at us, it's kind of like we have guests coming over, like time to clean up the house because there's a moment here where a lot of people are gonna reconsider what they've thought about the industry. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think the role of oil and glass is going to be reevaluated coming out of this. But I've always just said uh, the, the, the flaring, the methane intensity, it's been a black eye for this industry. And if you really want to convince people that U.S. shale is well positioned for the energy transition, which we believe because of the short cycle flexibility, um, you need to have transparency around how you can lead this industry from a uh, in uh, emissions intensity standpoint. The other, the other thing that kept coming up at zero, which was fascinating, I think Kerry emphasized this is, and there was a stat we had that last week, but it's something about the ex, Kerry didn't have the stat, but the extra coal usage we had last year wiped out years and years and years of the benefits of renewables. So we kind of, now we're on back to baseball, behind the count, yeah. behind in the count. So if that just is all the more reason to put natural gas in the game and start attacking the problem. Okay, so I got to ask you this. You, we had a text exchange on this, so I know. Let's see what's happening. All this stuff about the administration is saying industry should go faster. And then it kind of comes back across the net. Well, our investors are pretty beat up. They're not looking for us to, you know, go faster. And the next thing you know, you have some administration guy like looking at you and saying, oh, so you're the problem. Like, how, how's that whole debate been going? Is there anything in that discussion that is useful or is it all just kind of the, more of the political stuff? No, I mean, listen, I think it's an important dialogue to, ha to have. And, and at Sierra Week last week, there was a closed door meeting between the State Department and a number of investors. Um, unfortunately, the, uh, one of the uh, representatives of IHS um, pointed to me and said it's all his fault. So uh, I may, may be audited this year from the IRS. But no, I, I think, listen, it was, the question from the administration was, why is uh, the price signals there to, to increase capital spending? Why isn't the industry responding? And I think one of the talking points was, it's not just about the price signal, it's the sustainability of that price signal, the duration of that price signal. And this kind of volatility is really hard for the industry in, to invest into. Uh, we've just seen it now since the, as we come off by $20, right? And so that's really challenging. And it goes back to the latest white paper we put out called 
now or never testing the resolve. We're at a, an important inflection point for the industry to establish credibility that is not going to chase the volatility in the commodity price. So I think you know, th that conversation um, amongst investors, that messaging hasn't really deviated over the last few weeks, I'd say. But you know, the, um, it's kind of, I mean, the administration with, with the noise around, yes, Keystone would not have prevented this problem, but the noise they make around that, permitting, their nominees to various groups, various agencies, they, they clearly have, like when you say investors stop giving the industry terminal value, one of the reasons is because whether you believe it or not, it looks like there's people in power who would like to diminish the industry. And so I guess it's a long way of saying um, it's frustrating to watch this conversation. Well, and I wouldn't discount the circularity, which is the higher the price goes, the, the greater the concern that you're accelerating the energy transition, so you're less likely to get investors to come back. So um, having a higher oil price that the industry is investing into is actually counterproductive to what we've tried to establish. Do, do you guys think that the, because um, you, you mentioned it with respect to natural gas, but do you think the entire energy transition discussion at some level has been changed? Or do you think, because you see people trying to adapt to, okay, where am I now? Because this is a different world. I can't, I can't tell. I think it just made it even cloudier, honestly, how this plays out. Well, I, I think about these things like a pendulum and, and the pendulum did swing too far to one extreme. Is it going to come back to the middle? I, it's, hard to, it's hard to predict. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Maybe. Well, I think part of um, the conversation was about the elements of risk and the sources of risk. And we would, and Pioneer did a great job putting this in their earnings or their investor materials where they would show the emissions profile by country, right? Mm -hmm. And you can get some of the cleanest barrels domestically. And so when I think about the spotlight that that put on country risk, and that has reemerged and has taken on a whole new meaning. And so when we think about energy security, it's also energy security around the diversification of supply and where is that barrel or molecule coming from. And so I think that gives us a little bit of a different um, way to talk about the energy transition and the role domestic energy can play in it. It was always amazing that the notion of, hey, we're going to use oil for a while. Why don't we use our own? It's cleaner, pays us taxes, employs our people. Like it was amazing that that wasn't resonating. Hopefully, it will uh, going forward. But we're, you know, still the talking to Venezuelans. Are we having, trying to have the greatest impact on the environment, or are we trying to get rid of the oil and gas industry? And those are two different answers when you think about the role of displacing coal. The question is, can we get to the right degree of uh, commonality in that dialogue? Mike, when we were, uh, when I was going through some of these guys' papers, um, the copper industry. You know, as another resource industry, all these copper guys last week were saying, we don't know where we get the copper. I don't know, were you struck by the analogy to copper a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it really kind of goes back to, you know, Mark's point of like, when is the transition going to be, uh, begin? Where, where does production start to roll over? And a year ago was 25 or 26 was sort of the conventional wisdom, right? And that's why the multiples got killed. And now it kind of went back to 2030. And after I listened to all these uh, mining companies and J.B. Strobel from uh, basically Redwood Materials saying, hey, I was at Tesla five years ago. I was looking at this five years ago and came to the realization is we got a supply problem for our company and for the industry in general. And so when you step back and think about that, I think everyone's really focused too much on oil and gas supply and demand as opposed to 
what does this energy transition supply demand look like? I think demand's there, the supply isn't there. It, it doesn't seem to me, or it's gonna be a lot harder to get to, which means prices are gonna be a lot more higher than you think, which means this transition's gonna be much, much higher than you think, and probably gonna be much slower than you think. And so that says to me that the energy, you know, the EMPs, the fossil fuel companies, I think that terminal value is gonna be pushed out into the future. And I think that that means multiple expansion. It's interesting. The, um... The deal, the other deal we saw on top of Oasis, Oasis Whiting was Chevron Reggie. And there's, you know, classic buying new. And I don't know, do you think we're going to see more of that kind of consolidation as people are like, hey, I'm diversifying, I'm, you know. I do think the strategy for an integrated company is different than an upstream producer. I think it comes down to, do you touch the consumer? And I think the closer you are to that endpoint consumer, the more you're going to have to be integrated into a, into a uh, solution that's aligned with the energy transition. Okay, so we gotta ask you the big one, which is, well, there's actually two big ones. So around here, got two mugs. We've got, if we're gonna save the world, we need to start by saving the conversation. And then we've got, what does energy look like in 10 years? So the first question is, you each get a mug, participants on the show get a mug. Which mug would you like to have? Megan? Oh, ladies first. <laughs> I like the 10 years. I oh, like the forward-looking momentum. Forward 10 years. And, you know, Megan's practical. Let's get to work, you know. Yeah. You can have a 10-year like one, one because it goes back to everything we've been saying about yes. transparency and having the conversation and getting people talking about the right thing. So I'm excited for this. So, okay, so now, now the tough part. What does all this look like in 10 years? If you were trying to yeah. sort it out, you're in a boardroom, you're making a 10-year investment, you're you know, just trying to do policy. What, what might this whole thing look like in 10 years? Well, I think the one thing that's clear to me is you're going to have a much more consolidated industry. Um, I think the maturation of this industry demands uh, fewer companies competing against each other in the same basins with the same product. Do you think we'll see North American guys consolidating and then going back international again? It's a good question. I mean, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult uh, to invest in three to five year projects, uh, build times that have a three to five year payback when there's just going to be increased uncertainty around the duration um, and the pace of the energy transition. Uh, I, think, I think the bigger question is what role does technology play in changing the drillable inventory within the US? Mm. Um, because I think we all recognize there's not a shortage of inventory, there's a shortage of inventory at a certain price. And how much can technology play a role in bringing that inventory to a acceptable cost. That's, I think, one of the big questions for the industry, for investors going forward. Megan, what do you think? What are some big features of that world 10 years out? Yeah, I always like to live by little short snippets of knowledge. And so one of the things that has resonated with me lately is for three easy payments of doing the work, you can get exactly what you want. And I think for the industry, it's gonna do the work and it's gonna get exactly what it wants, which is mind share and market share. So what are the three things it needs to do? It needs to focus on that moderated reinvestment rate, returns on and of capital, and then ESG. All factors and elements of ESG and connecting the dots between financial performance and non-financial data like the ESG KPI. And so I think um, when you put all that together, the industry delivers on that. There's general consensus in how the industry needs to row and um, you start to see it re recapture that mind share and market share that it's kind of 
taken a, a little bit longer than maybe many of us expected to take to get. And what's interesting, when, when um, it might have been unintentional, but you know, EST is sometimes it's so much stuff, right? It's like a huge laundry list is how it feels. But you're really boiling it down to like, stop the flaring, clean up the methane, document the methane, like, you know, show it to me, make it real, uh, take the net zero, uh, scope one and two, bring it forward. Yep. So talk the talk, walk the walk around those critical things. And that's not to dismiss other things, but that's the heart of it for oil and gas. I think it's the commitment to net zero and how do you turn that aspiration into action? What are you doing today to meet tomorrow's targets? I think the industry just needs to provide that roadmap and signposts along the way so investors can say, you're making progress towards those goals. It's one thing to put out the aspirational target, but as we're seeing, the market's just, it's, it's kind of yawning at this point. It's just saying, okay, that's great. You're putting out the target, but how do you get there? And provide me that roadmap so I can actually evaluate your progress. I think that's the next step, and that's really what we're going to be pushing the, the industry on. Well. Mike, anything else from you? Yeah, I, I would make the point that, I mean, there's so much free cash flow coming in the industry. If not when to speed up the scope one and scope two, then when? You know, you've got the money now, do it. There will be multiple expansions, so there's no reason for you not to do it. Accelerate. Okay. Well, I don't want to mess up a moment where we're all in an agreement. So, <laughs> Colin, uh, thank you, brother. And Mark and Megan, thanks so much for joining us. It's so fun. We'll get, we have more than mugs for you, we promise. <laughs> but those we wanted to give to you in this format. So. Thank you guys for having yeah, us. Yeah, thank you. This thank is you great. Awesome. Thanks, everybody.